Welcome to Politics is Everything, where we are all cattle and no hats. I'm Kara ong uh, And I'm uh, Kyle Kondik from the Center for Politics. And any mention of hat in politics reminds me of Lyndon Johnson throwing his hat from his uh, helicopter during his barnstorming tour. And then he threw it to his, uh, you know, he thought he was, people thought he was throwing it to somebody in the crowd, but it was actually to his aide who had to catch it and bring it back. <laughs> Well, we're excited for a very special episode this week. Uh, We have two Davids joining us. David Neer is the political director at Daily Coast and publisher of Daily Coast Selections. And David Beard is a contributing editor at Daily Coast Selections. The Collective Davids co-host The Down Ballot, which is the podcast of Daily Coast Elections. And on the podcast, they primarily focus on elections below the presidential level. Thank you both so much for taking time to have some political chatter with us. I wonder if you can start by sharing a little bit about the podcast and why you all think it's important to follow elections down ballot. Yeah, so, you know, I've been with Daily Coast Elections for, I think it's something like seven or eight years now. Obviously, David Neer has been doing it for far longer than I had. And it's been primarily, you know, on the web, the the written word blogs and, and, you know, the email newsletter and everything. And one of the things I was thinking about is a way to to grow Daily Coast Elections to reach new people in different ways. I'm a big podcast fan. I listen to a number of podcasts. And so I thought, you know, this would be great. You know, it's something that has a relatively low barrier to entry. Like we're not trying to produce a TV show, or, you know, or a radio show. It's something that doesn't have a huge amount of, of production value comparatively and something that um, we could do. And it really came out of the Slack conversations that the elections team has, you know, every day that people find really interesting when they jump in. We have other people from Daily Coast sort of read through and be like, oh, that was so interesting. I learned so much just by seeing us chat about things or, or nerd out about some local election that they hadn't heard about. And we thought, what if we could just, you know, bring that to the podcast format? And so, you know, that's one of the big things we do with the weekly hits, which is sort of the first half of the podcast between, you know, David Neer and I, where we just sort of talk about um, what's going on that week. And then, you know, we have have guests to, to do deeper dives or, or do a deeper dive with one of the other uh, contributing editors. And the the down ballot focus aspect really comes out of Daily Coast elections as a whole. That's been the focus of the site um, ever since its inception. You know, so many you know new sites cover the presidential election. Everybody knows who's running for president. Everybody probably hears way too much about the candidates running for president, honestly, and they don't hear nearly enough about the candidates running not only for Senate and Congress, but especially for city council, for mayor, for their state legislature which as we've seen has an enormous amount of influence on people's day-to-day lives, Um, just particularly, obviously, abortion being the most recent example in recent years. So, you know, that's something that needs a lot of attention and that's what we're trying to bring. I've been a proud reader of the Daily Coast Elections newsletter for probably more than a decade at this point. Um, I try to read it every, every day it comes out and I'm, you know, I'm always impressed that you guys can, you know, really, really cover the, run the gamut of like what really what's going on at the, you know, Senate house gubernatorial level, which is, you know, what we, we cover a lot of at the crystal ball too. So one thing I was curious about is like when you guys are putting that together, I know it comes out as the, just kind of like a daily digest every day. And then, then the morning email, the, the following, the following uh, day, but uh, like, you know, how do you, how do you put that together? Like, are you, you know, looking at like different state news sites? Do you use, do you use, kind of uh, social media to kind of aggregate things for you? Like what's your, what's your process for, you know, for, for putting that together? It is a big process because Kyle, as you said, we are covering 
all those races, Senate, House, governors, but also more obscure stuff further down the ballot, secretaries of state, attorneys general, county leaders, prosecutors, sheriffs, state legislatures, and more. And it requires really taking a very broad approach and casting the widest net possible in order to find out about all of this stuff. You know, we're living in a strange time when for many, many years, local media has, of course, been suffering terribly. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like that situation is going to get any better anytime soon. But but at the same time, we now have access to local media that we never would have had even a couple of decades ago. And so we can read a local newsletter about Minnesota politics that we probably never would have discovered or known about at all, even just a few years back in our own lifetimes. So we have a huge list of newsletters that we subscribe to. Some are more valuable than others, of course. And we read through these every day to pick out the stories that we think are going to be of interest to our readers. We also pay a lot of attention on social media. Twitter, despite the sort of slow motion tragedy that's unfolding on that site, still is a very valuable source for information. And so we carefully curate lists of reporters and other folks that we follow, academics and experts and folks like yourselves for information about local races. And then there's also our community. Kyle, you alluded to this you know, every day. The way we publish our newsletter is a little bit unusual. We publish it as sort of a live blog on our site. If you go to elections.dailycoast.com, uh, we have a live digest every day where as we write each item, let's say here's a new item on the Arizona Senate race or here's something on the Michigan State House, we'll post it. And so for the hardcore addicts, I know they keep a tab open on our site and are hitting refresh all day long for the latest updates. And then we, at the end of each day, we compile all that into a more organized email newsletter, the one that goes out at 8 a.m. Eastern every morning. And our community in the comments section is also talking about the same stuff that we're talking about. They're hardcore nerds just like we are. And so we often find a lot of great links, especially overlooked stuff from them in the comments. So it's really about listening carefully and paying attention to stuff that often goes overlooked. And Kyle, also, I think that you're probably a Robert Caro fan. You, I think, were alluding to one of his stories uh, when we were prepping for this podcast. Caro's maxim is uh, turn every page, read every page. And you can often find amazing stuff buried in the penultimate paragraph of some local news story. So you really can't just read the first or second paragraph and move on. Uh, maybe you're just skimming the piece, but you really want to hit the whole thing. And there really is just so much information out there. And I feel that our value add is sifting the wheat from the chaff and presenting the most valuable nuggets to our readers. I have a follow-up question, um, which you can choose to not respond to, but um, artificial intelligence is kind of having its moment of um, uh, <laughs> uh, being in the attention in, in the news right now. And I wonder if you see any role for AI in in sort of the gathering political news process? I'm happy to answer that question, Kara. And I will say, I will warn every reporter, but especially folks in the election space, against trying to outsource your research to ChatGPT. And I say this from firsthand experience. 
I have put in some very basic queries into that engine and gotten complete garbage answers, stuff that is factually wrong, stuff that just doesn't make any sense at all, stuff that is missing huge amounts of information. I, I once asked it to tell me the list of Jewish senators in the, in the U.S. Senate, and it listed like two names. It didn't even include Chuck Schumer. So the other problem, of course, that many, many people have commented on is that ChatGPT responds with such authority. It has no ability to suggest that it might be incomplete or incorrect. So I, I think the information that it produces is pretty lousy. I once asked it to tell me who the top vote-getting libertarian candidates statewide in Minnesota were, and it was spewing back Republicans. It was telling me races that didn't even exist. It said the top candidate was in, in a Senate race in a year that Minnesota didn't even have any Senate races. So uh, maybe one day these kinds of tools will be more valuable, but right now, uh, danger, Will Robinson. So recently, your team of self-proclaimed, uh, or you called them this, not me, <laughs> team of hardcore election nerds, recently analyzed the most important states for 2024 and came up with these five, Arizona, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. I wonder if we can talk about what makes each of these important for both parties in 2024, especially for the down-ballot elections. Um, and I want to add to that, um, Kyle just uh, retweeted um, a report out um, of a an exclusive from Mitch McConnell, um, an interview on CNN, where um, he talked about uh, their priorities, and they saw some there's some overlap in, in those states, um, uh, especially Pennsylvania um, and and possibly Wisconsin. Um, so maybe we can start with North Carolina, which is um, which is where uh, David Beard is from. Uh, there's a lot going on in that state, especially down ballot. Just that uh, last week. Um, the state legislature cleared a final, uh, new abortion restrictions cleared a, a final vote in the Republican-controlled state legislature. Um, there's a Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, um, who's, gonna, who's barred from running again by, by term limits. Um, uh, and the state court's new GOP majority just recently did um, a previous ruling by a Democratic majority, which is the case underlying Moore v. Harper. Um, so a lot happening in North Carolina. What, what makes it so important for you all in 2024? Sure. Well, beyond the fact that it's my home state, so I, I would put it on any list of important states, sort of no matter the situation. But I think there's actual reasons to back this up as well. Um, Obviously, to start at the top, obviously, though we don't cover presidential elections, we're obviously aware of what's going on. You know, North Carolina is going to be a competitive state. It's probably not the tipping point state. It probably won't be one or two, but it's pretty high up there. Um, then, of course, you've got the governor's race, as you mentioned. The Democratic candidate's almost certainly going to be Attorney General Josh Stein, um, who would sort of be a continuation of Governor Cooper's moderate Democratic governance of the state. Um, and the GOP is having a primary, but is probably going to nominate the lieutenant governor, um, Mark Robinson, who is a far right sort of wacko nut job who said all sorts of homophobic, transphobic, um, various other um, things has pushed a bunch of, you know, very extremist causes would be way, way out of step out of the sort of North Carolina, you know, moderate 
um, mold for both Democrats, you know, and Republicans in its history. So that's an extremely important race. Um, you know, definitely one of, if not the most important gubernatorial race of 2024. Um, then, of course, you're going to have a number of potential congressional races. We don't know. There's probably going to be a gerrymander um, that goes after three or four Democratic candidates, um, you know, after, as you mentioned, the now Republican North Carolina Supreme Court um ended the the previous ruling that said that you couldn't just partisan gerrymander to your heart's content. The Republican Supreme Court said, actually, no, go for it. We're not going to do or say anything to stop you. So whatever gerrymander you want to put in, you know, not our problem. So they're going to go after, you know, at least three, maybe four seats. And we'll just have to see with the maps and with the candidates, if any of those um, end up still being competitive races. You know, I think, um, you know, like Wiley Nichols race, um, which I believe was North Carolina 13, you know, he won a tough race, you know, in a seat that wasn't an easy seat to win, you know, that's probably still going to have some of Raleigh potentially. So, you know, maybe he could win a more Republican seat. Um, we just don't know, obviously, until you see the maps and who, who the candidates are. Um, and then the state legislature in North Carolina is up entirely um, in 2024. Um, they're up every two years, both chambers. So with these new abortion restrictions, um, that are probably going to be enacted over Governor Cooper's veto. Um, you know, the way to stop that from happening or, or change those laws back um, would be to elect a, a Democratic state legislature. Obviously, that's going to be very difficult now that they're going to be extremely gerrymandered. Um, but you can't let that stop you from trying. Um, so there's going to be a lot going on in North Carolina up and down the ballot. And I also wanted to add, you know, Kara and Beard, you both mentioned the North Carolina Supreme Court ruling. Right now, there is really nothing that progressives or reformers or Democrats in the state can do about gerrymandering in the short term. But there is a potential long term path for Democrats to retake the state Supreme Court. And it involves multiple elections over multiple years. The soonest it could happen is not until 2028. But Democrats need to pay attention, and I'm sure Republicans will as well, to the race that will be on the ballot next year. It's for one of the two remaining Democratic seats, Justice Mike Morgan, who wrote a dissent. Oh, oh no, it was, sorry, it was Earls who wrote that, who dissented in the gerrymandering case. So he will go before voters in November of 2024, and Democrats need to retain that seat to have any kind of shot at retaking the majority on the court in a few years down the line, a majority which, as you both alluded, they had until just this year. And just to add, North Carolina doesn't have any sort of voter initiated, you know, referendums like many states do and that we're seeing many states, you know, protect abortion rights through that way. We only have legislative referred re referendums or amendments. So there's no option that way. You have to, you know, win some power um, via an election. And Republicans have the supermajority in the state legislature, thanks to Trisha Cotham, um, who announced in April that she would become a Republican. Uh, yes, which if you listen to the down ballot episode of that, I went on a very big rant about it is, um, you know, incredibly insulting that you would um, run as a Democrat, talk about protecting abortion rights, talk about protecting LGBT rights, um, and then switch to the Republican Party out of what seems to be a fit of personal pique because uh, some Twitter, some tweeters were mad at you for missing a vote um, and then decide that because you're a Republican now, because some people got mad at you, 
why not restrict abortion rights? Why not, you know, go after um, the trans community? So it is, it is awful. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to her hopefully losing in 2024. Um, I wanted to go back to those McConnell comments today, which you all might have, might have seen, but I thought it was kind of interesting that, you know, they're, they're, to me, there are these three obvious targets for the Republicans in the Senate, you know, Montana, West Virginia, and Ohio is the three Democrats who hold Trump won states, but then he lumped in Pennsylvania with those three, which I thought was kind of odd. I don't know what, what, what your guys' reaction was to um, if, you, if you saw that that story today. Yeah, my feeling is McConnell very much wants to recruit the candidate who narrowly lost the primary last year to Dr. Oz, uh, David McCormick. And he wants him in the race for a lot of reasons. I would think chiefly, though, because for McConnell, expanding the map as widely as possible increases his chances of winning the two or potentially just one seat that Republicans need in order to take back the Senate. And so he's been in the midst of this somewhat public wooing of McCormick, who could self-fund a race. And I think that he had to mention Pennsylvania, whether or not his numbers really back up the reality of that seat being in play. You know, in a midterm, we just saw John Fetterman, of course, beat Oz by four points. Bob Casey would be the Democratic incumbent in that race next year. He seems to be pretty popular. Obviously, the 2018 midterms were a huge Democratic year, but he won by a very comfortable margin that year. I would be very surprised if that seat truly comes into play for Republicans. If it does, then it's an absolute wipeout election. And of course, you can't rule that out. It's only May of the odd-numbered year. Um, but I, I, I really do think that the GOP is going to have to focus on, like you said, those three red state races and probably some other options ahead of Pennsylvania. In a post to your community, you also had listed Pennsylvania as, as a state to pay attention to in 2024. Um, what what else are you looking at? I mean, Democrats have recently flipped control of the state House of Representatives. That could help um, severely limit abortion, um, which wouldn't uh, which could not be vetoed by the governor. And and Democrats also uh, elected a Demo- elected a Democrat as governor last year and and flipped a Senate seat to to John Fetterman. Um, so, but what else like kind of puts Pennsylvania as as sort of a critical state for you all in twenty four? Yes. So the Democratic majority in the state house, which they won sort of against all odds last year, is as slim as it gets. It's only one seat. And in fact, there is a special election coming up very soon for a vacant Democratic seat. I would keep an eye on that one. Um, So Democrats obviously want to try to pad their margins in the state house. And also they have a realistic chance of taking back the state Senate next year. Only half of the state Senate is up for election every year or every cycle in Pennsylvania. So that's definitely going to be a huge battleground. And in addition, this year, there's actually an important race for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Supreme Court races are one of our favorite topics. I know, Kara, that you have devoted a lot of ink to them as well. So that uh, is certainly one I want to pay attention to as well. And then on top of that, the new Democratic governor you mentioned, Josh Shapiro, he used to be the attorney general, and his post of AG will also be up in 2024. 
And so that is yet another important race. We've seen the outsized importance that AGs have taken on across the country, uh, both sides, Democrat and Republican. So there really are going to be a ton of major races in Pennsylvania, even if I would give Casey the edge in the Senate race right now. And I'll add at the congressional level, there are a number of seats that Democrats held by a pretty narrow margin that are really some of the toughest seats that Democrats hold, particularly uh, Pennsylvania 7 um, with Susan Wilde and Pennsylvania 8 with Matt Cartwright. Um, those are seats that Democrats are going to have to hold on to um, you know, if they're looking to take back those five seats they need to to win the majority. And potentially, you know, we say this every two years, Brian Fitzpatrick in Pennsylvania won as a Republican in a seat that Democrats should be able to win, but has, has withstood any and all comers. So, you know, always keep an eye on that one. Um, you know, you all are looking at this every day, you know, kind of looking at the, the different candidates who are announcing. And this is sort of the sort of the season for that. I mean, we have these basically permanent campaigns in the United States. And so candidates are always getting in early. You know, we had big, big candidate news re- recently. Governor Jim Justice, Republican of West Virginia, running for Senate. Uh, Colin Allred, House member from Texas, challenging Ted Cruz uh, in, in that Senate race. You know, what, what do you think so far just about the kind of recruiting successes and or incompletes um, you know, on, on, on sort of both sides so far as you look at both the House and the Senate? You know, Kyle, I think that's such an interesting question. I was talking about this with one of the members of my team, Jeff Singer. He is the lead writer of our newsletter. And I was wondering if it was fair to say that there have been a lot of recruiting misses so far. And I really think it's too early to draw conclusions. We took a look back at some dates of some big announcements from recent cycles, and it really still is only May. So I think it's just too soon to say for certain whether or not both sides have met their recruitment aims. That said, you know, you mentioned Allred in Texas. I think that's an important get for Democrats, not because I'm especially bullish on Texas. I think any Democrat just has to be realistic about how difficult that state is. But because Democrats' offensive opportunities are so, so few in 2024 when it comes to the Senate, really only that and maybe Florida. And so sort of like how McConnell needs to expand the playing field, well, Democrats have to do whatever they can to expand the playing field. And Ted Cruz for angry progressives is just an absolute money magnet. We saw, of course, with Beto O'Rourke back in 2018. So Allred ought to be able to raise the kind of money he needs in order to keep Ted Cruz focused on his own race. One contest I think about a lot from last year is the Ohio Senate race. I was always pessimistic about Tim Ryan's chances, but J.D. Vance turned out to be a really poor fundraiser, and the Senate Leadership Fund had to dump in more than $30 million just to prop him up. And he still won by six points, which was fairly weak for Ohio for a Republican in a midterm year. But even though Democrats didn't win it, think about how narrow the margin was for Catherine Cortez Masto. You know, that $30 million maybe could have put Adam Laxalt over the top in Nevada. So I do think that Allred is an important get. And honestly, the fact that a young guy like that, who now has a safe house district, decided that it was worth taking a chance on this one, that says positive things to me because he could have had a long career in the House had he wanted. And he's giving that up. So it suggests that his polls and his analysis, he's seeing something there. Um, The one area that I do think that 
you can sort of see in recruiting is in uh, Senate incumbents because of the way that the map is set up for 2024. The Democratic side of things is largely incumbents and their decisions to run for reelection or not, you know, outside of, like David here mentioned, Texas and Florida, which are the two maybe offensive opportunities. And we've seen largely good news there. Um, you know, a couple of senators have retired, but they're largely in, in safer blue seats. You know, Sherrod Brown has announced for re-election. John Tester has announced for re-election. Um, it seems like, you know, the other senators, you know, Bob Casey, Tammy Baldwin, um, you know, are set. The one the one notable, obviously, is, is Debbie Sabinow in Michigan, who is retiring, but Democrats seem to be coalescing around a strong candidate and, a, and at least a slot can, at least so far. So in that area, that's something that happens very early because senators tend to make these decisions earlier and earlier. Um, that's been, I think, on the whole, good news for Democratic Senate candidates to to be in a good starting position. Obviously, you'd rather have your incumbents run than have to find a, to find a new candidate in most situations. I want to ask you guys a question. Do you think that Manchin is going to run for re-election? Um, I had someone tell me a little while back that they really thought that if justice ran, it meant that Manchin was not running, which I don't know if they're actually connected or not. Um, but that was just sort of an interesting little hypothetical. Manchin does seem to be like taking steps to keep himself in the game here. He's um, highlighting his own differences with the bad administration, which of course you have to do. Um, I, you know, I personally think, I, I think Manchin's going to have a hard time winning regardless, even if he wins, if he runs again. But obviously to your point, you, you know, you, if you want to expand the map, I mean, let's put it this way. If Manchin doesn't run, West Virginia is probably like, you know, South Dakota in 2014 or, or, uh, you know, just, just like a, a state that is, a, that's a flip that basically is just an automatic sort of thing or like the Massachusetts or Maryland governor's races for Democrats in, in 2022. Um, so, uh, so, you know, it is really important. He's, I, you know, I guess he suggested he's going to wait until December, which I guess he can given that there's no alternative, but maybe he wants to be like the no labels presidential candidate or something like that. I don't know, but um, I don't, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a great, great read on it ultimately, but, uh, you know, we, I think it's, it's, it's easy and, and accurate, I think, to pick at Republican Senate recruiting over the past few cycles. I do think getting justice is a pretty good, pretty good and big get. Um, it's just that he, he's not necessarily guaranteed, although I think he's favored probably to win his own party's primary, but, uh, you know, justice, I think is pretty formidable. Um, I've also seen it suggested, I think this is interesting that, uh, I can't maybe if it was even you guys who pointed this out, or maybe somebody else, but that if you were a Democrat, sort of resigned to Joe Manchin losing, like Jim Justice is not that bad. Of I mean, obviously he's a Republican, and he's a diff, you know a different party or whatever. But but he but was a Democrat. He's, well, yeah, he's a former Democrat, <laughs> but he um, ideologically he's not like a fire breather the way that Alex Mooney is, you know, the the primary opponent. And so um, Shelley Moore Capito and Jim Justice, if in fact they were the Senate combo from West Virginia, would actually be like relatively moderate given where West Virginia has now gone. I thought that was an interesting, you know, point too. Well, David Beard and David Neer, I'm sure you don't get this t get this a lot, but um, actually Mitch McConnell agrees with your sentiments. Um, he did say earlier today that he thinks it's way too early to start assessing various candidates that may or may not materialize. Uh, so Mitch McConnell agrees with you. <laughs> oh my God, I completely changed my opinion entirely. Whatever I said, the reverse. Well, I will say for all of his, you know, in my opinion, awfulness, in many ways, he's obviously a very astute strategist of politics. He's, you know, won many elections um, over the years. So hopefully, from a pure strategy perspective, hopefully, you know, we're coming at it from the same same concepts. You know, I do feel like he, when McConnell says things about the map publicly and gives interviews, like 
he did, he doesn't necessarily say things that are like all that profound, but I also feel like he's sort of accurate in what he's saying. Like I think that maybe maybe lumping Pennsylvania in with the others is to to, uh, uh, to your guys's point, you know, maybe trying to get David McCormick to run. But I feel like this this interview he gave to CNN was like it was pretty much straight shooting. I thought. Yeah, and you, well, you find a lot of senators and representatives don't know much about elections outside of their own race, sometimes don't even know that much about their own race in some situations. <laughs> but obviously, you know, he's the leader of his caucus. He, he and he's a smart guy for, for whatever it is. Um, he knows, you know, where the where the competitive states are and the issues that his party has had. Speaking of uh, candidates that may or may not emerge, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about broader candidate quality um, and uh, some recent polling that came out from CBS YouGov, which I think is really worth paying attention to as we head into 2024 um, and gives us a sense of where Republican primary voters are, at least in this moment. Um, but 69% of Republican leaners don't believe President Biden is a legitimate president. Uh, 75% say that the idea that Trump actually won in 2020 is a reason to vote for him. And 61% want a candidate who says Trump won the 2020 election. Um, uh, furthermore, while 60% said they'd prefer a candidate not to comment on the January 6th insurrection, among the remainder of respondents, more of them actually prefer a candidate who supports those who entered the Capitol than uh, a candidate who criticizes people that were there. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk about what your sense is of how uh, Donald Trump and election denialism writ large um, you know, continues to impact uh, the Republican field and Republican candidates, especially down ballot. The first thing I feel that I need to say is elections and politics aside, this these sorts of attitudes and views are dangerous for democracy. And we saw that on January 6th. And, you know, it was Mitt Romney who said that if you really want to prove that you're tough, well, and then, then that requires leveling with your audience and your voters and your constituents and telling them the truth about what happened and not feeding into lies and delusions. And I think we're in a very sad and dangerous place where things that are just manifestly untrue and things that undermine democracy are now being taken as gospel by a large swath of the electorate. And what leaders say really matters. People do take their cues from leaders. Now, on an electoral level, I think we saw last year that Republicans really, for the first time, started to pay a price. And we saw it in particular, I think, at a really interesting stratum of the ballot. And I'm talking about Secretary of State races, because in these major swing states, like, let's say, Nevada or Michigan or Arizona, oftentimes on the ballot last year, the Democrat that performed the best among the entire ticket was the candidate running for Secretary of State, because quite clearly, a sizable swath of voters in the middle said, you know what, I might be a Republican or a Republican-leaning independent, but these attacks on democracy and on our election system and these false cries of fraud uh, are just way too much for me. They're, they're totally extreme and over the top. And I think that Republicans really risk continuing to pay that price. You know, obviously abortion was the number one issue in 2022, and it, it will be again in 2024, almost certainly. But I think that 
electoral extremism and giving into the big lie is something that turns off a lot of voters in the middle. And a lot of pundits were extremely skeptical, if not hostile to that. You know, you might recall that speech that Biden gave last fall, not long before the election on democracy. And a lot of folks out there were saying, how could you talk about this instead of gas prices? Well, it turned out that this was actually something on the minds of a lot of voters. And, you know, at the time, I certainly wasn't sure. I wasn't going to 2022 predicting this kind of backlash. But now that we've seen it actually happen, uh, then I think that it uh, presents a, a real worry for Republicans again. And I think the insularity of the far right sort of media celebrity sort of cycle is really hurting the Republican Party in terms of these sort of like incoherent beliefs, these these far right beliefs that really go away from the broad middle ground, even like the middle ground that includes like pretty conservative Republicans, um, this sort of like conspiracy theory-esque wing of the party that's growing and, and power and influence um, turns them off and it caused them to nominate uh, bad candidates. And then they, you know, do worse in elections, even obviously, you know, in a very red state, you might win your election anyway, just because of the Republican lean of the state. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a bad candidate that did worse. Um, and I think to go back to a race that we've already talked about, the, the North Carolina governor's race, um, Mark Robinson is probably a worse candidate than the other Republicans who are going to run. Uh, Dale Falwell is the state treasurer. He's already announced. Mark Walker is a former U.S. rep who's almost certainly going to get in. Um, Mark Robinson is probably a worse candidate than those other two. But because he's crazier, he's probably going to win the primary and probably make it harder for Republicans to win that governor's seat. And so it is a little bit of a, you know, and that's going to probably make them more extremist and he'll probably shout, you know, that the election was stolen. Um, and it's a little bit of a cycle that Republicans are going to need to find their way out of. People often are like, how can Democrats help Republicans become a better party? Don't we need two healthy parties? Um, and we'd love to have two healthy parties, but like, you know, they have to fix themselves. Democrats can't fix the things that are wrong with the Republican party right now. Um, all we can do is, is try to win elections and hope that they understand that like democracy is important. But also they shouldn't, I just want to clearly say Democrats also should not be contributing fuel to the fire by supporting election denying candidates in primaries. I think that's really problematic. Speaking of voters in the 2022 midterm elections, uh, we have new uh, current population survey data from the census. Um, and data that they released shows that turnout in last year's uh, midterm elections fell from a century high point of 50% in 2018 to 46 uh, 0.6% in 2020, in 2022. Um, Michael McDonald um, has posted graphics with turnout rates by key demographics on his U.S. election project website at the University of Florida. Um, I think most notably, Black voter turnout dropped by 10 percentage points from 51.7% in 2018 to 42% in 2020 in 2022. Um, and according to Washington Post analysis um, of the CPS data, that's an 11 point turnout gap between white and black voters and the largest in any presidential or midterm election since at least 2000. Um, so pretty dramatic. Um, you know, turnout was lower among other demographics as well. Young voters, um, uh, there's young voters and, and other minority voters. Um, but I wonder what um, all of you, Kyle, want to bring you in on this too. 
you know, what is what is the turnout by demographics uh, and and the the lower voter turnout rate in 2022? Um, tell us about that election. I think that there is a very good chance, paradoxically, that the turnout fall off among some of these key Democratic constituencies is actually bad news for Republicans for 2024. And the reason why I say that is that the midterms turned out to be a pretty, I would say, unterrible election for Democrats. It certainly went a lot better than almost everyone expected. And there is, at this point, no really good reason to think that these drop-offs will repeat themselves next year. So if we go back to an environment where Democrats can expect more or less normal levels of participation from their core constituencies, and as in 2022, a set of -of middle-of-the-road Republican voters who are either staying home or not casting ballots or deciding to vote for Democrats because they're turned off by extremism in the GOP, then I think that's a recipe for Democrats to potentially do pretty well, including taking back the House. Now, of course, we don't know that this is going to happen. And I want to be clear that the turnout drop from the perspective of Democratic participation is very, very disappointing to see. And I mean, small d democracy. But Midterms are a strange beast. We're one of the only countries that really has elections like these. I personally think we have too many elections, too frequent elections. We elect too many offices. And I think it makes it difficult for people to want to participate. But like I say, I think that there is a good chance that this reverses itself for 24. And if that happens, then it's going to be a momentary blip that could prove to be very misleading, especially if Republicans take it as a prediction of the future. Obviously, 2018 was a uniquely motivating midterm election with Donald Trump as president. And so we saw, you know, record turnout in, in 2018. So it it doesn't surprise me um, that in very different circumstances of 2022, that that turnout dipped some um, and that the biggest dips were among the you know most marginal voters. Those are the voters that Democrats struggle to turn out when they have, you know, um, a year with lower turnout, it tends to be younger voters and voters of color. Um, and the the older, you know, white college educated voters, those are the ones who vote in every election, you know, including the the April elections for dog catcher. Um, so in, in on one hand, it sort of makes sense that, you know, knowing what we know about turnout historically, particularly in midterms, that those were the voters, you know, that went down. Obviously, in 2024, um, it's very important that those voters turn out. I think they will. I think David Neer made a good argument for why we will see them in 2024. But it is also obviously incumbent upon the Democratic Party, incumbent on the presumably Biden campaign um, to, you know, do the work to to turn those voters out. And I'm sure there will be many thousands of people, you know, working on that um, in 2024. I think David Neer had a point that it was, you know, that it actually in some ways was was good for Democrats that they were able to sort of hold up OK in a, you know, in a, in a negative environment in which they did not have particularly good turnout from their own core constituencies. Um, and it does kind of reiterate that some of the, I think, maybe persuasion problems that the Republicans had. And then I think it's sort of incumbent on Republicans to sort of think about their own persuasion problems and, um, you know, maybe there are movable voters elsewhere in the, in, the, in the electorate that they need to be targeting. And, you know, that that is also has to do with their, uh, you know, who their presidential choice ends up being and how strong that person ends up being, you know, compared to Biden or if there's another Democratic nominee. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And in particular, in New York and California, we saw what the consequences really look like when you suffer from weak turnout. But like I was saying, if the Republican majority in the House is dependent on weak Democratic turnout in New York and California, man, I don't know. I, I, I don't see that there's any reason to expect that Democrats in those two huge states are not going to show up next year. So if they do, then I think there's going to be a whole lot of endangered Republican House incumbents and Republicans are going to find uh, and Republicans are going to need to find another way to retain their House majority if that is, in fact, what happens. And we we saw in some states um, that turnout was much better, states that had an enormous amount of focus, either for a gubernatorial or a Senate election or, or an abortion referendum. Um, and particularly, obviously, Georgia is, I think, a good example of one where I think African-American voter turnout largely held up. I don't have, you know, state by state numbers, but I think there's no way that Raphael Warnock would have won re-election without good African-American turnout in Georgia. So that's clearly something that happened in certain places. And like we said, like other states that didn't have that sort of big focus just had some terrible turnout numbers like, like New York. Well, David Neer, David Beard, thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything. It's been our pleasure, Kyle and Kara. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Wigley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.